Good to have you. It's good to be here. It's good to look into God's Word with you this morning. And, and I want to start off really quickly with a question before I pray, and that is, what do you consider adventure? What do you consider adventure? I would love to pass the microphone right now and let each of you uh, tell everybody else what you think is adventuresome. I'm not going to do it. Some of you are very grateful uh, that I'm not passing the mic, but I'd love to know. Uh, and, and you know what? The, the faith that we are in, that we follow, is an adventurous faith. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about that a great deal today as he talks to the church in Philippi, which were citizens of, of really uh, two nations, the, the nation of heaven and the nation of earth, uh, the nation of Rome. And so today, as we continue our study in the book of Philippians, we're going to talk about what the adventure really is in following Jesus Christ. Before we do that, let's talk to our Lord. Let's bow our heads and hearts in prayer. Our great God, we do come into your presence today and we honor you and worship you. And just as we have sung just now, there is no one like you, for you are high and holy and lifted up. There is only one God, and there is only one God who is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And though that mystery is great to us, we bow the knee before your word that tells us that is true. We honor you, we worship you, we thank you that you are the God that is, is perfect in every way, infinite, that you are holy, 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 that you're omnipresent, that you're omniscient, and yet with all your power, you are loving and kind and warm, and you've been merciful and gracious to us in Christ. And so, Father, now as we come into your presence, Lord Jesus, as we come as your church together to look into your word, we pray that you would meet us because you know our needs. You know everyone in this room. You know everything that has happened this week. You know the fear, the anxiety, the failure. You know, you know the successes. You know the great things. You know the challenges that we face. And so now as we come, we pray that we would be able to give all those to you and listen to you, and, and ask that your Holy Spirit would take your word and make it come alive in our hearts. And so we do pray for the one who teaches that you'd forgive him his sins, and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth, for we have come to hear your voice. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn to Philippians 3? We're going to finish the third chapter today. Uh, we looked at verses 1 through 11 last week, and we're going to do a little bit of overlap uh, starting at verse 8 today. So Philippians 3, verse 8, and then through the rest of the chapter. Here we go. This is God's holy word to us. The Apostle Paul says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death until I attain 
to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I've told you and now tell you even weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. I like that, by the way. Some of you uh, respond after I say, this is God's holy word with thanks be to God. The church has often done that down through history, and it's a powerful statement. So I hear it when you say it. I appreciate it. Well, this is Paul's uh, uh, idea of adventure. What I just read is Paul's idea of adventure. The Christian life is a life of adventure, according to the Apostle Paul. Uh, What's your idea of adventure? I've already asked you, uh, and again, I'm not going to pass the mic, even though I'd like to know. My idea of adventure is climbing 14ers in Colorado. By the way, speaking of Colorado, one of your elders went there a couple of weeks ago and didn't even think to invite me. I'm not going to tell you which elder it is, but he's here in this service this morning. Uh, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. But uh, hiking uh, 14ers in Colorado is my idea of adventure. There's 54 mountains over 14,000 feet in Colorado. I've done about 16 of them. I love it. Some of you have done that. And, uh, you know, for a flatlander, uh, when you get up there, uh, you're, you're thankful for oxygen, and uh, it's just a great adventure to get to the, the top of one of those mountains, and uh, uh, really a privilege. Adventure is a part of life. One of our presidents, Teddy Roosevelt, was a, uh, a president of adventure. If you've read anything about Teddy Roosevelt, you know he loved it. He, he resigned his position as assistant secretary of the Navy in order to become a colonel uh, in the uh, Spanish-American War so he could charge up San Juan Hill with his troops. He uh, uh, then ran for president, of course, well, vice president. He was vice president, then he uh, became president, and then ran for office again, but then the second time he ran for office, he lost. And after that terrible defeat, about 1912, Teddy Roosevelt decided he needed an adventure. So he, he uh, set up an exposition, expedition, and they went down to Brazil, and to the Amazon, to a tour, to examine, to explore a river called the River of Doubt. It had never been traveled before. And in her great book, The River of Doubt, author, author Candace Millard says, it was a black uncharted tributary of the Amazon that snakes through one of the most treacherous jungles 
of the world. Spoiler alert, if you read it, he almost died. Incredible story, incredible adventure. He had no idea what he was getting into. It ended up being a tributary of the Amazon, but it was filled with all kinds of danger. And, and you know, there's oftentimes danger in the adventures you take. That's why you don't go alone. But adventure often has danger in it, and the Christian life has its fair share of danger in it too. Was it all, did you know when you became a Christian you were going to face the things you faced? How about maybe you, maybe you got that psalm or that song in church that said, uh, once you become a Christian, everything's going to be happy uh, every, all day long, you know? And some of us bought following Christ on that basis. If I become a Christian, no problems, no trials. No. We're called into a great adventure. And if you're here this morning and you're not a convinced follower of Christ, we're glad you're here. But there is great goodness in the adventure of following Christ. And we want you to know about that. But for most of us, we need to understand what that adventure is. Now, by, by way of quick review from last week, because we looked at a lot of verses last week. And by way of review, I want to remind you that Paul had gotten to the point when Jesus met him. We saw in verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul had gotten to the point where he was done trying to earn his way to heaven. He had really come to the point, well, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and that changed everything, didn't it? He met Jesus, and Jesus said, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he was blinded, and he couldn't see, and he met, he met his match. Paul met his match in Jesus. And, and, and he decided at that point, he really had no choice, to give up his self-salvation project. He gave up this idea of, I'm going to try and earn merit enough to get to heaven. He gave that up, and he was so glad. And then in verses 10 through 11, it says this, that after he met Jesus, after he met the Lord, after he found a holiness and a righteousness that came from Jesus alone, it changed his life forever. He said it in Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11. He said, I want, now that I've met him, I want to know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death until I attain to the resurrection of the dead myself. This is what Paul wanted. He wanted to know Jesus. Catch this. Christianity is not just knowing facts about Jesus, is it? I mean, I can tell you a lot of facts about Jesus. You've read the Gospels. You can tell me a lot of facts about Jesus. Paul didn't want to know facts about Jesus. He wanted to know and experience Jesus. I want to know him. And that's difficult because he's in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Uh, he's not right here. Uh, and yet, by the Holy Spirit, we can know him and experience him in our everyday life. That's what Paul wanted. Um, have you ever had that experience like the disciples after the resurrection in Luke 24 on the road to Damascus? They were with Jesus and they didn't know they were with Jesus. And what does it say about them? They said, we were with him. Our heart, what? Our heart burned within him. I've had those times where you've been reading the word. I've been reading. I remember in Israel I, one time, I've been there a couple of times, been there once. And that first time I, I remember thinking, Jesus was probably right around here. 
And I sensed his presence in a really unique way. That happens sometimes as we read the word, as the Holy Spirit makes real in our experience what is not just a cognitive thing that we know him, we know facts about him. That's what the gospel does. Grace does that. It brings us to really know him. That's what Paul wanted. I want to know him. I also want to know the power of his resurrection. And Christianity is nothing if it is not a relationship with God that is based on his power. And I'll tell you this, I've been a pastor for a long time. And there's no way I'd be standing here today if it weren't for the power of God. You too. Look at your story. You wouldn't be doing what you're doing if it weren't for the power of God. And we forget. We forget all that he's done. And Paul wanted to know the power of the resurrection of Christ. I saw the movie last night. My wife and I went and saw I Can Only Imagine. Have you seen that movie yet? You need to, you need to go see the movie. It's great. It's great. It's about the song. I'm not asking you to go see a war movie like I did the first sermon here, right? I'm asking you to go see about that song I Can Only Imagine and the power of a transfer. The author, Bart Millard, um, his dad got in an accident when he was young and it, it affected his brain chemistry so much that it became a violent dad. His mom left the two kids. And that's sort of the story you know. That's out there. But you need to see the story because his dad was radically transformed. Power. Christianity is not so much about what we know. It's who we know and his power that is moving in our life to get us through every day to help us advance the kingdom of God. Because what are we? We're disciples who advance the kingdom of God. I want to know and I want to be conformed to his death. What? <laughs> yeah. Paul said, I want to become like Jesus. And that means I want to die to myself. My morality is not good enough. I want the character of Christ. I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. I want to suffer for him until I attain to the resurrection of the dead. That, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, is the adventure of following Christ. Knowing him, experiencing him, experiencing his power, suffering with him, this is the part they don't tell us when we come to faith in Christ. You'll suffer. Having a, a radical transformation of our character until we attain to the resurrection ourselves uh, because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, what I want to do is I want to talk real quickly, um, or, or not so quickly, don't look at your watches, about, uh, about what is a part of this excellent adventure. That's what Paul saw as the adventure I want to point out three really important elements that he now goes into showing us about what's involved in the adventure, the excellent, the wonderful adventure of following Jesus Christ. The first thing is a humble authenticity. You see, once you understand the grace of Christ and, and experience the grace, it's a fire that burns in our hearts and it develops a humble authenticity. Look at, look at the, uh, verse 12a. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. And then 13a, Paul says, brethren, I, and that involves you ladies, brethren, sistren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. What? Perfection. I don't know Christ perfectly yet. 
I haven't experienced his power perfectly yet. I haven't suffered for him perfectly yet. I, but, but I've come a long way. I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived at total sanctification yet. I'm not there yet, but I'm on the way. And I love what I see here because in the journey, what grace develops in those who are in the journey of following Jesus Christ is a humble authenticity that says, I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived. Uh, and, and that is so free. He models the reality that grace produces Christians who are really rather humble and really rather honest. They say, I'm not there yet. I haven't, I haven't become like Christ, but we become more and more aware of our own defects, our own areas where we need to grow. Blind spots become aware uh, in our hearts and minds. And, 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 and we're not all that upset about them. Because grace develops people who are growing. They're not over, we're not, catch this, we are not overwhelmed with our own failures. Why? Because Jesus has paid for our failures. And so we can say in this journey of following Jesus, I'm not there yet, I haven't arrived yet. It's kind of a humble authenticity. Christians are not people who never sin. I mean, how did we get that idea? How does the world get this idea that the church is filled with people who don't sin? I don't know where they get that idea. Maybe they got it from us. I don't know. Maybe we're trying to play spiritual games so much that when we come to church, it's like, how are you today? I'm fine. I haven't sinned in, in a, at least 20 minutes. I don't know how they got this idea, but the church is not a place filled with perfect people. The church is filled with imperfect people who sin regularly. You don't have to tell me uh, to sin. I mean, it comes quite naturally for me. But I'm not focused on that, and you're not focused on that, because Jesus has paid for our sins. So there's a, a humble authenticity. Uh, we didn't scrape enough merit together to make it happen on our own. And so it's important for us to understand what grace is. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve when there's every bit of evidence that you deserve the opposite. And so Paul can say, I haven't arrived. Now, he doesn't go into detail here. And we don't always have to go into detail confessing our sins. Did you notice I haven't confessed my sins to you in detail? You don't want to know. They're not that bad. Don't get up and walk out. But, but you know, what if they were? <laughs> there is incredible freedom in Christ that we don't have to wear a mask. Have you ever put on one of those full Halloween masks on? I mean, the last couple of years, remember what? It's suffocating, isn't it? Suffocating to wear a mask. Gospel-transformed people are not wearing masks. We say, any sinners here? Yep. I haven't arrived. I'm not there yet, but I'm, but I'm in process. And so the challenge is, if you're worried about your sins, and you've already put your faith in Christ, let grace sink in deeply so that you can say, I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived. I, I'm not there. And not let shame wash over you because the freedom of the gospel is that our identity has been set 
by Christ. So in the adventure, even though we're in this adventure of following Jesus in every way, there's a humble authenticity that comes, and Paul models it. Secondly, what comes from grace is a focused tenacity. Look at verse 12b. I love this. Not that I've already obtained it or already become perfect, but I, what does he say? Press on. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I press on. It's in the present, active, tense. Paul is saying, now that I've become a Christian and I haven't arrived, but I'm pressing on, grace continues to energize me to press on to move in the direction of experiencing Christ, uh, suffering for him, growing in his perfections. It, It just pushes me because Jesus laid hold of me. Great terminology. Acts chapter 9, read that, and you will see again how Paul was laid hold of by Christ. I can, there are so many times when you're raising your kids where you got to lay hold of them because they're about ready to do something to harm themselves or somebody else. And so you lay hold of them, right? Guys, dads, that's your job. Especially if you have boys, that's your job, dads, because the mom gets... Little boys will run over a mom, won't they? Ladies, can we just talk? You got to lay hold of those little Philistines. They need Jesus big time, but they need your hand first. And what happened to the apostle Paul is that Jesus Christ laid hold of him. You can use whatever phrase you want to use, predestination, election, whatever. Aren't you glad you're in here? It is so good. That's great. He laid hold of you, got you in here early. So Paul says, I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus, and, and, and so therefore I want to press on to that. You see, that's what grace does. Grace says, I'm forgiven. I, I'm not what I should be, but I'm, but I'm accepted fully for what I am because of Christ. And so what does that make us want to do? It makes us want to, it makes us want to grow. People say, don't talk about radical grace too much. You talk about radical grace too much, people will take advantage of it and won't want to grow. Are you kidding me? To know that I've been accepted for all that I am in Christ, that, makes, that energizes me to want to grow. That's, what, that's the way it's supposed to work. C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, said he was brought kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. He was laid hold of. So were you. You never would have gotten here without Jesus. And so it causes us to press on. Paul says it again in verse 13. I do not regard myself as having laid hold. This is the great apostle. He says, I'm not there yet. Later, he calls himself the chief of sinners. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, when you come to faith in Christ, grace begins to lead you to two types of forgetting. And you're following Christ, it leads you to two types of forgetting. Forgetting your failures of the past and forgetting your successes of the past. Paul says, I forget those things that I did for Jesus. It's not a big deal. I'm not leaning on those things. I'm not leaning on my failures either. I'm pressing forward because grace helps you live in the present tense to advance the kingdom of God, a focused tenacity. I love this. Uh, it leads us to go after what God has called us to do. Some, 
Some believers are so, they are so taken for what they've done with Jesus in the past that they're not growing in the present. And some believers are so frustrated of their failures of the past that they've given up. You see, what grace does is it enables us, it enables us to understand that it's not about what we have done for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for us, right? And that's energizing. So I don't look back and I say, look what I did for Jesus. Great, I'm done. Or look how I failed. I'll never be good enough. I'm done. Discipleship is, is, is about where we're going because Jesus is bringing us there. It's living in the present tense. Have you ever, have you ever read uh, Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis? I'd encourage you to read this book. I, I, uh, I've mentioned books, but I don't encourage you to all read many books, but I encourage you to read uh, the Screw Tape Letters. It's the, uh, it's the fictional correspondence between the senior demon and his nephew, the demon in training. C.S. Lewis gave these as a series of radio broadcasts in the 1940s during World War II. And he said that when he got into, into the demon's mind, it was a very, very difficult time for him. But this is so powerful. Letter 15 from the senior demon to the younger demon in training. And the younger demon's in training's name is Wormwood. Not a great name for a kid. Maybe a dog or a cat. My dear Wormwood, I have noticed, of course, that the humans were having a lull in their European war and what they naively call the war. And I'm not surprised that there is a corresponding lull in the patient's anxieties. Do we want to encourage this or keep him worried? Tortured fear or stupid confidence are both desirable states of mind. Our choice between them raises important questions. Now, here's what I want you to hear. The humans live in time, but our enemy, God, but our enemy destines them for eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to the point of time, which they call the present for The present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. And it alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. He would therefore have them continually concerned with him or with the present, either meditating on their eternal union with him or separation from him himself or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. Now he goes on, but I'll let you go over to Bright Light Books and get the the book yourself. That's where I get all my books. What is he saying? Lewis has found what is absolutely true and that what Satan wants to tempt us to live in is not a sense of living in eternity, 
that we are connected to the God of the universe and that our resurrection is coming. Satan doesn't want us to live in light of eternity or, or in the very moment right now. Because you see, the present now is the most connected to eternity. What Satan wants you and me to do is to live in either the past or the future. What the enemy wants you to do is to become overwhelmed by your past that you can't fix. Overwhelmed by the future that you can't control. So that's why Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the prize of the high call. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The great adventure is focused on eternity while we live fully in the present. And you say, what if I don't have that attitude? If you don't have that attitude, Paul says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have the same attitude. And if in anything you don't have it, God will make that known to you. So if you don't have this attitude, just plan on the Holy Spirit saying to you, you need to have this attitude. Maybe through me, maybe through somebody else, but he wants you to live in the present as we connect with eternity. Now, there's one other aspect that, that comes out of this whole thing because the challenge is to let grace sink in here so deep that we're excited about growth and Christ-likeness no matter what stage of life we're in. Um, a humble tenacity, a focused, excuse me, a humble authenticity and a focused tenacity. But notice how, the question that really gets there, and I won't have you raise your hand, but how many of us are there? How many of us always have this humble authenticity? I can have it sometimes. How, how many of us have this, this tenacious focus for growth? I can have it sometimes. How do we get it? How do we get there? I'm glad you asked because Paul deals with that uh, in verses 17 through 21. Here it is. I told you I love adventures in, in Colorado. I, I like to do them with family and friends. I don't like to do them alone. Interesting. Paul says that what we need thirdly are mature role models, plural, that we hang out with. We don't do the great adventure alone. That's not what it's about. And so he says in verse 17, brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Discipleship is, you see, if we're going to become disciples, we've got to follow a teacher, don't we? Disciples are learner. But in the first century AD, who could Paul point to you and say, this is arrogant. Paul said, follow me. But let me ask you, in the first century, when he was the church planter and there were no other churches around, who would they follow? Who would they learn from to know what, uh, what a Christian was like? Paul says, look at me. Paul says, look at my life. And guys, we need that. Got men, brothers, we need that, don't we? Because we tend to live in silos. It's so easy for us to live in silos. Um, that's why I spend a lot of time with guys, because when guys flourish, then women, children, churches, and culture can too. But guys, we, we so easily uh, live alone, a lonely life. We need role models. We need to be taught, particularly so many of us don't have uh, earthly fathers that taught us how to be godly men. Uh, I'm not going to read as much as I read from uh, the other book on C.S. Lewis, but I got to tell you this story because this came out of D.A. Carson's book, uh, Basics for Believers. D.A. Carson was one of my professors in seminary. If you read the Gospel Coalition website, uh, 
D.A. Carson and Tim Keller started that. They are evangelical Christianity now. D.A. Carson was my Greek professor in seminary. Scared me to death. We had to stand up with our Greek text, read it out loud in front of the class, and exegete the text from the Greek to the English. D.A. Carson was a scare. He's still a scary dude. He is so brilliant. He's so brilliant. I remember when I didn't say the accent right, when anybody didn't say the accent right, he'd stop. He'd go, accent, accent. And that just about threw you so much that you couldn't even do the exegesis. I mean, he was an intimidating guy. That's why when I found this, that he wrote in this book, I was so thankful because it tells about when he was in college and he didn't know much about Christianity. It was so great to hear that because when I met him, he was an expert, still is. He's probably 150 right now. I don't know how old he is. But he says when he was at McGill University in in Canada studying mathematics uh, and chemistry, then he went into theology. This is how scary this guy is. But he said he didn't know much, and so he was uh, evangelizing a couple of students, and he took them to the guy that he knew in school there that really knew a lot more than him, and that was Dave. Dave was in the graduate program, knew a lot more about Christianity than he did, so he took two of his friends to Dave because they wanted to learn more about Christianity, and D.A. Carson didn't know much. So, so he took the first guy to Dave, and, 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 and Dave said to the guy, why do you want to meet with me? And the guy said, well, I, you know, I've been raised in the church. I know a lot about Christianity, but I want to learn about Islam and I want to learn about Buddhism and some of the other uh, religions. And Dave looked at him and said, I don't have time for you. D.A. Carson's like, you don't have time for this guy? He goes, no, I don't have time for you. You kind of just want to, you, you kind of have a dilettante's view of Christianity. You're just kind of doing this for the fun of it. When you get serious about Christianity, come back to me. He looked at the other guy and he said, why have you come to meet with me? And, uh, He said, well, I was raised in a liberal home. We don't believe the way you do, but it's a good home, a happy home. My parents loved their children, disciplined us, set a good example, encouraged us to be courteous, honorable, and hardworking. For the life of me, I can't see that you people who think of yourselves as Christians are any better. Apart from a whole lot of abstract theology, what have you got that I haven't? Carson says, this time I held my breath. What in the world was he going to say? And... um, So Dave looked at this guy and he goes, watch me. He said, what? He goes, watch me. He said, come live with me for a month. Be my guest. Watch what I do when I get up and what I do when I'm on my own, how I work, how I use my time, how I talk with people, what my values are. Come with me wherever I go. And at the end of the month, you tell me if there's any difference. That's a role model. Does that scare you? Parents, does that scare you? You repeat what you say to your kids 13 trillion times a day. But how you model for them gets through. Discipleship is not just about dumping cognitive material. It's about allowing grace to humble us, energize us toward growth, and becoming role models. We grow in community, in connectivity. 
It's the best way. It's the only way. It's the only way we can do it. And, 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 and we have to have good role models because there's bad role models. Verses 18 to 19. There are bad role models, aren't there? Aren't there? Many who I talked about, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. Their glory is in their shame. But ultimately, what we need to be is citizen role models. Verses 20 through 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. Discipleship is learning, the adventure is learning to live with heaven in mind as grace energizes us in the here and now, becoming role models for one another, challenged to join in this adventure. Grace led Paul to know Christ and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. So how do I pull this together? Well, to pull this together, the challenge is to allow grace to continue, to see it for what it is as not just an intellectual doctrine, but the very power of God accomplished for us in Christ. So focusing on the grace of God in Christ that it causes us really to be settled. It's okay, I'm not perfect. But I'm energized to grow. Where are you in your spiritual journey? You've been following Christ since you, the time of Paul? Or are you a new Christian? Allow this to energize us. Maybe you don't know Christ. Join us. We're not perfect. But we're going someplace. And the only reason we're going someplace is because Jesus has taken us here. The gospel makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? John Piper was talking about Christian life once, and somebody said to him, Christian life's boring. He goes, the Christian life is boring? You call resurrection boring? You and I have been resurrected to new life in a resurrection that's coming. It's not boring. Jesus doesn't do boring. It's an adventure. And Paul just talked about it. You take it to heart. And let's pray together. Living Lord Jesus, we come into your presence now and we ask that the words of Paul would become the realities of our life. We pray that, that what, we, what we heard from your word could be something that could seep deeply into our heart and energize us for that next part of our journey that you would so set us free, that you would so make us come alive, that, Lord, you are truly pulling us along in this incredible adventure, that we would know you, the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your suffering, being conformed to your death, until we see you face to face, and that can't come too soon. We give you honor and praise as we pray in your holy name. Amen.